Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. The year is 1997. Memories are elusive, but podcasts last forever. The movie, Eve's Bayou. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the show where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best films of all time. We started on the AFI list. We culled that list of 100 down to 40 great films, and we're looking for 60 more. And we're going to be doing that in this series, going through a bunch of films, but not just one by one. We're going to put them all together in miniseries. We've already done uh, back-to-school movies and horror, and now we're on Fucked Up Families. And I have to tell you, Amy, the response to Tokyo Story last week was really... uh, helpful to me because I realized that I was not alone, that many people had not seen this film uh, and were not familiar with Ozu. So I feel less bad about myself for having this giant gaping hole in my uh, Japanese film knowledge. Wow. I love that a movie about disconnection made you feel more connected to people in this universe. It really did. It really did. You know, people took the train to my heart, even though it was a long (laughs) and a hard journey. They got there. They got there. Indeed, they did. Whoa. Wait, what's that lady tied to the train tracks? Don't worry about her. She's fine. (laughs) Uh, Amy, you know, by the way, I want to just bring up uh, something I talked about this last week, but I didn't tell you about this. I have a documentary uh, that's currently out on Disney+. Plus. It's my first documentary, as a matter of fact. It's uh, part of the 616 miniseries, Marvel 616. And it's all about how Marvel culture has uh, infiltrated our world and not the movies. It has nothing to do with the movies. This is all about the comics. And, um, so it was really fun for me to kind of tackle this, this world because the comics, it's 80 year history and there's so many stories to tell. And I kind of uncover these lost characters. And then I get people like John Hamm and Nicole Byer and Jack McBrayer to help me launch them as a brand new series. Uh, it's called Lost and Found, and uh, you can check it out right now on Disney+. Plus. 
about how did, how did you like directing a documentary? I mean, did you get to wear, you know, the little jodhpurs and did you have a big oh, yeah. megaphone? I, I had both of those things. And what made it really hard was I was directing myself. I was very hard on myself. But taking off the jodhpurs between watching mm-hmm. a take that I was in, I was changing a lot. Some people said to the detriment of production, but you know what? <laughs> I needed to do it. I will tell you one thing, though, Amy, it was, was kind of fascinating was uh, I had never directed a doc. I directed a bunch of other things, but the amount of control that you have and the way that you have to approach it, you know, I learned a lot as a fan of documentaries. I think I'm always like, whoa, this guy with a camera crew just showed up and they got this amazing, you know, they got this amazing story. And you have to really go in knowing what you want and then being open to being taken in different directions. But the fact that the editing process plays such a crucial role, I mean, in many respects, like the editing is the writing. And I'm so not used to that. I'm, o- I'm always used to like the editing process being so integral to scripted material, but you get to do so much in the edit. A voiceover changes everything. And I just shot a lot of scenes where I'm walking and I didn't know where I was going to use them. And then you could sort them in and it all, like, it all makes sense. It's, it, it is like putting together a puzzle, but not knowing what the image is. And when you see it, you're like, oh, right, that's awesome. That all worked out. I didn't even plan that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I mean, Michelle Gardner did a documentary all about how documentaries are sort of fictional and how there's like no way to make a documentary that feels completely true. It was called um, Is the Man Who Is Tall Happy? It is him just talking to Noam Chomsky about truth and images and words and language. But he animated the whole thing because he thought, if I animate it, then you're not going to just take my word for it that this is true, even though it's called a documentary. But actually, if we're going to talk awesome documentaries for a second, can I put in a plug for a documentary called Collective that just came out that is so good? It's um, from Romania. It's actually Romania's nomination for their best foreign language Oscar film. It's their country's nomination. They nominated a documentary. That's how good this is. Uh, But what happened is in 2015, you might remember that there was a huge fire at like a nightclub in um, Romania. It was called the Collective Nightclub. So it's the Collective Fire. But at this nightclub, there's a goth band playing. And when the fire broke out, like almost 30 people died in the initial fire. But then almost 40 people, 40 young people died in the hospital, like months later of infection. And so this documentary starts with the parents being like, what happened? And the journalists, like especially a journalist who works for a sports magazine, like a local sports paper, is like, yeah, what did happen? And so they start going to press conferences. You know, we've seen a lot of press conferences lately with government officials and asking questions and then not taking their word for it. And they wind up revealing this incredible story of corruption that is shocking and modern and true and so, 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 so relatable. Like, uh, I hope people watch Collective. It's amazing. Oh, wow. Uh, You've just piqued my interest. And if people are home and, you know, they've watched my documentary, they've watched Amy's documentary and you're looking for another documentary, I'm going to recommend, well, I mean, this one that I I kind of just absolutely love called Becoming Bond. I'm a big James Bond fan, and I feel like this one hasn't gotten that much attention. Uh, It focuses on the actor, George Lazenby, who played James Bond once. And James, in, in his James Bond, which I actually love, it's called On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and it's a lot more Daniel Craig, Casino Royale, than it is Sean Connery, Diamonds Are Forever. It, it's yeah. Like lean. Bond heads pointed as the best Bond. I they? mean, I, I think it is definitely up there because it, it is dark and stark. It could be better, but it is such a cool step in the right direction. And anyway, this is a story about how he became Bond, what the reaction was. And it's kind of told in this uh, drunk history way where there's reenactments. And it's an interesting story. It's not incredibly sensational as much as it is uh, a great look into this 
this anomaly that we have in our James Bond universe. And I think even if you don't, uh, if you don't even like James Bond, it's, it's fascinating to kind of see how or what it's like to step into the shoes of something so iconic and mm. be poorly received. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, Amy, you know, speaking about docs, but also kind of what we should be doing over the holidays, you know, there's been a little bit of an outcry for us to revisit uh, a classic or to complete the trilogy, if you will. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about here, but... Uh, the Lord of the Rings That's right. No, what are you talking about? What Francis is that? Ford Coppola got his nubby little fingers all over <laughs> The Godfather 3 and has retitled it The Death of Michael Corleone. And it is a recut, remastered version of the third film that he says is completely the way that he wanted it. Not that he was... I don't know if he really had that much interference when he was originally making it. But from the trailer that I've seen, Sofia Coppola, nowhere to be seen in it. So I wonder if she's cut out of it entirely, although that would really wreck the uh, Andy Garcia plot. But uh, very curious, very curious about what this is. And I, I don't know if you were willing to to take one last dance with Al Pacino and uh, we can revel over the classic line of every time I think I'm out, they keep on pulling me back in. <laughs> I mean, I'd I I'd watch that for us. Like, I can't honestly. I'm just hoping that this is like the Snyder cut, where Al Pacino is now covered in like thousands of tiny knives. <laughs> you know, I saw that movie on New Year's Eve when I was a kid uh, because my dad and I were really cool and popular, and uh, and I'm I am curious to revisit it. I, I wanted to revisit it when we were doing it on the show, but uh, but. I'm glad to revisit it now with the recut version. So if, if we feel like there's enough online support, maybe we'll drop a bonus episode and uh, and enjoy this as the uh, the film comes out again. Well, then that makes me say of the Godfather trilogy, just when I thought we were out, we are now <laughs> pulled back in. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, Amy, we have a great movie to talk about today. Another kind of hidden gem, um, or at least a hidden gem to me. I, maybe I'm just proving that my film knowledge is uh, based more in Jason Statham and less in uh, Cassie Lemons. Uh, so uh, let's go down south and on spool, y'all. The year is 1997. Princess Diana is killed in a terrible car accident. Mike Tyson bites Evander Holyfield's ear during a match and is suspended from boxing. The bodies of 39 cult members from Heaven's Gate were discovered as they died by suicide in hopes of hopping on a spaceship following the Hale-Bopp Comet. The first book in the Harry Potter series is published. Tiger Woods becomes the youngest golfer to ever win the Masters at age 21. And audiences are watching a AFI favorite, Titanic, uh, Men in Black, Liar, Liar, and today's film, Used By You. Uh, let's take a listen to a clip. He said, pack your bags, woman. I've come to take you with me. And God help me. I pushed past my startled husband. I was going upstairs to pack my bags when I heard Maynard say in a tone I'd never heard him use. I don't care who you are, sir. But if you don't leave my house at once, I will hurt you. And I turned just in time to see Hosea pull the gun out and aim it at Maynard. I'm in love with your wife. And if you try to stop us, I'll kill you. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? 
Eve's Bayou, written and directed by Cassie Lemons. Um, this is her first film that she directed. It is a Southern Gothic family drama that is set in a summer during the 1960s. And it's not just any summer for our protagonist, Eve, uh, who's played by Journey Smollett, who has now gone on to increasingly famous things. She was 10 when she made this film. This is the summer that Eve killed her father when she was 10 years old, as she says in the memorable, memorable opening lines. Her father is played by Samuel L. Jackson, and he is the most charming man in their corner of the bayou. He's also the wealthiest man. He's a local doctor. And he's also probably the least trustworthy man in this corner of the bayou because uh, we are not really sure about his intentions with all of his lovely female patients and are also not entirely sure the truth of what Eve is making of his intentions. You know, this is a film that's really about truth and about family and about the lies that people tell to each other and to themselves to try to keep the family together. Now, as this family, you've got Lynn Whitfield as the mother. You've got Debbie Morgan as the aunt who has possibly voodoo psychic powers. And you've got Megan Good as um, Eve's older sister, Cicely. And you have her real brother, Jake Smollett, playing her younger brother, Poe. Now, this film is all about now, this film is all about complicated heroes and saying goodbye to the complicated heroes of our life. So when we take that and rewind it back, it's kind of perfect what the number one song was at the top of the charts on November 7th, 1997. It was the ultimate send-off to a popular, slightly problematic, but beloved fave. And it is, of course, Candle in the Wind. Goodbye, England's rose. May you ever grow in our hearts. You were the greatest place to sell where lives were torn apart You called out to our country And you whispered to those in pain Now you belong to heaven And the stars spell out your name And it seems to me You lived your life like a candle in the wind Paul, I am so excited that we're talking about Eve's Bayou because this is a film that made a huge splash when it came out. I mean, Roger Ebert said it was his number one favorite film of the year. It was the highest grossing independent movie of the year. It won Best First Feature at the Independent Spirit Awards. And then it felt like it kind of dropped off a little bit and it's been coming back. You know, Really recently in 2018, um, the Library of Congress put it in the National Film Registry. And so I'm glad that we are now talking about Eve's Bayou, this indie film that was such a big deal and deserves to continue to be talked about. I want to talk a little bit more about the Roger Ebertness of it all, though, because he did the thing that I think gives a critic real stripes. You know, you find a first-time filmmaker, you say, this person is special, here's what they did, here's what I want you to pay attention to. You know, he wrote, when he reviewed, when he reviewed Eve's Bayou, he wrote this, he said, if this film is not nominated for Academy Awards, then the Academy is not paying attention. I mean, that, wow. that's a bold phrase to say when you're reviewing a first-time film but from a first-time filmmaker. And, well, spoiler alert, they were not paying attention. Uh, it did not get any nominations because, I'm sorry, my beloved Titanic dominated the entire world. But what he said is that, that he said this, that Lemons can make a film this good on the first try is a rebuke to established filmmakers. And he likened her to this great history of Tennessee Williams, Ingmar Bergman, directors who made major dramatic opuses that he felt like this film slotted right into. He was like, this is a classic. I'm, gonna, I'm calling it now. It's interesting to compare it to Tennessee Williams because I find Tennessee Williams to be a little bigger, you know, a little larger than life. And this film is so kind of quiet and simple. I, I see the comparison because it's in the South. and But it, 
it definitely doesn't feel, and what I kind of loved about this film was it doesn't like hit the melodrama over the head. It It's played out in a very interesting, natural way. I, I think that's what I really loved about it. You know, you are not, uh, I would say, off baseball. I mean, uh, Lynn Whitfield, who plays the mother in this, the kind of like housebound, amazingly beautiful mother, the kind of mother that to me like reminds me of a V.C. Andrews character. You know, she's oh, yeah. gorgeous. She's got this pedigreed legacy. She was the great beauty of her time. She's from the South herself. And she, even she kind of said, I don't quite see the Tennessee Williamsness of it. Uh-huh. I knew early on that Tennessee Williams, mm. you know, and his approach, his how he viewed the Southerner, you right. know. I never saw myself in his work, mm-hmm. but I lived his work, you know. Mm-hmm. A, a very complex, very bright, you yeah. know, cultural richness of, you know, the gatherings. But there are dynamics of families and riches of traditional and traditions in black family that I have not a damn thing to do with white people, mm-hmm. racism, slavery, mm-hmm. or anybody else. Yeah. We are fabulous mm-hmm. and rich. Right. It's not all gloom and doom. And some of our problems are just our own problems. Yeah. Some of our complexity is just ours. Mm-hmm. And I want to own that. And I want to talk about that. So mm-hmm. I get tired of paying so much attention to things that aren't just interesting people. You know the film that it reminds me the most of? It reminded me of To Kill a Mockingbird. Absolutely. I was going to say the same thing. I think the thing that connected me to that was the way that you're seeing this story through the eyes of a child. That was one of the most impressive things. Like you really feel like you are in the you're in the shoes of this this child watching the world go on around them and not fully understanding it and not knowing what's right and wrong and true and false. And and that really connected to me. Yeah, exactly. That idea of you're with the child as she's watching events happen, but mm-hmm. you know that the child doesn't totally get it. So you're you're adding in what the child doesn't see. Or, you know, at one point, the um, Eve goes with her dad on a doctor visit and her dad shuts the door on her and leaves her outside as he sleeps with one of his patients. Yeah. And we know what sleeps happens, with but... Bones. Goes to the bone okay, zone, Amy. That's a bone, bone zone. zone. That's a bone zone visit. That is uh, the meat thermometer taking that what? temperature. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of the bone zone blues. So he's a chiropractor is what you're saying. <laughs> but yeah, that, that idea of like, we see what she doesn't get to see, but we also are able to know what she's not able to know. And there, it's that same kind of process of like a girl who's incredibly close to her dad, you know, just the way that Scout is with her father, with Atticus Mm -hmm. Finch. But the arc is different, you know, where Scout is learning that her dad is a hero, you know, that this this man is an important man who's done great things in this community. This is the inverse. This is Eve learning that her dad, who is a hero, who starts off as like the greatest hero of the land, worshipped by everybody, kind of sucks. It's 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 a disillusionment story. Yeah, and I also think what is really interesting is to see adults interacting with kids. Um, it tells you a lot about their character. And, you know, that opening sequence where she's running around the house, you can pull so much in and you feel immediately how she feels about her brother, about her mother. Um, and what makes this film so interesting is the way that Sam Jackson treats her is so incredibly loving and kind and sweet, but yet 
us as the audience is watching him and going, this is a bastard. Like he is a bad dude, but it makes the movie that much more complex because we're seeing him through the eyes of her being absolutely caring and, uh, and really, I think being a good father, even though he's not a good man, if that makes sense. I hear what you're saying. There's, there's this, so much of what's happening in this household is about everybody being jealous of Samuel L. Jackson's attention. Like everybody just wants more of their dad and they're fighting over it right from the beginning. I feel like there are hints of this in Tokyo story, the way that um, the sister who ran the beauty parlor, you know, didn't have quite that much like indulgence for the sister who had more of the dad's love, like more of the dad's good years when he wasn't a drunk. But here at the top, you have these scenes where um, Eve runs out of the house because she's jealous that her dad at these big parties only dances with her older sister, you know, who's mm-hmm. slightly taller, slightly prettier and, and like kind of the more traditional way, like looks more like her mother. And they have to have this fight right up at the beginning where she's trying to explain to her dad that her feelings are hurt. And she's trying to get his love and affection, even when she she has just caught him having sex with one of their friends. They. Yes, babe. How come you never dance with me? Baby, how can you say your daddy never dances with you? When we're alone and stuff, but not at parties. You always dance with Sicily. Tell you what. From now on, we'll dance at every party. I mean... From that scene on, like, I find this film really gripping because you're watching a guy manipulate his daughter. Like, he knows that this daughter has has dirt on him that she could use to really screw up his life. And yet he do- she apologizes to him. She's apologizing yeah. to her dad for discovering him cheating on his, her mother. And he, like, manipulates her so, so suavely. It's... He, you can tell that he's not like a total, he's not, a, I don't think her dad is a creep. I don't think he's the worst person in the world. I don't think he's a super villain, but he's selfish. No, he's a complicated character. Uh, in many ways, he's a leading man. He has a sexy energy to him. He carries himself in this way that is, I think, really interesting, especially for Sam Jackson. I hadn't really seen him play this role that much. You know, he's very suave. He can pull it off and he is charming. He is also incredibly unfaithful to his wife. And we know that for a fact. And what this movie does is wrestles with this dilemma that is set up pre on the beginning. Like, well, we know he is this, but is he this other thing? Which is the crux of the whole film. Like, you know, is he someone who is incestual? And I think this movie does a really good job of giving you a lot of doubt. And in many respects, it reminded me of the play Doubt. And I know that that sounds like a joke, but they deal with that as well. This idea of like, what is the truth? You know, I believe the truth is this. I don't know what is right and what is wrong. And you present situations and will we ever truly know what actually happened? Um, Right? Because there's the known knowns. Like we know that, the dad is cheating on it on the wife. We right. know that. Even we got even that. though like Eve gets shut out of those conversations, door mm-hmm. closed on her, told she can't listen in as they're talking about it. She doesn't know the full story of who and what and if there's more than one and what's going on. But we glean enough to have a sense. 
But then there's the event that we don't know. It, I don't think it's spoiler to talk about this, something so central to this. No, I mean, right? it's, it's it's the entire movie. I mean, like I said, yeah. the movie is very is very well told and very compact. And this is the centerpiece. I mean, this is the whole, really, the whole movie is this. Yeah, yeah. The centerpiece is that Cicely, the Megan Good character, the older sister, who is trying so hard to be grown up, trying so hard to, like, cut her hair, look adult, look beautiful, get special time with her dad. She waits up alone for her dad to come home at night when he's been out with other women to get her alone time with him. Um, and then when the mother starts trying to shut this down, gets into a bigger fight with her mother about like, I deserve more time with my dad. This is what's happening. Anyway, one night the dad comes home drunk and Cicely creeps downstairs. She sits on his lap and they kiss. And both she and her father have completely different interpretations of who kissed who and what happened and what it means and where this could have gone and how bad this was. But they both know that it was very, very bad. And Eve knows that it was very, very bad. And we're here as the viewers kind of stuck in that position of knowing it was terrible, but not knowing who to believe and not knowing if there is a person to believe. Which makes for, I think, an incredibly compelling film, because I think film sometimes has a tendency to be so black and white, Mm -hmm. right? We know what the hero is going through. We know what the villain is doing. It's revealed in the end. There is some larger plan at play, you know, whether it's a thriller and you go, oh, she was guilty all along or uh, oh, that's where the gun was. You know, this film makes you a member of the family. And what I love about it is it also is paralleling this story with coming into adulthood, transitioning from being a child to an adult, because there are complexities in that. Like things aren't as black and white when you're a kid there. There isn't gray. You know, it's like, I got the thing I wanted. I didn't get the thing I wanted. I'm happy. I'm sad. And, you know, not to jump fully ahead, but that last image of the two girls standing, you know, at the edge of the water and this moment, like it really is like this moment is forcing them out of being children and into being adults. I think there's a really beautiful story there. And and maybe that's the the loss of innocence that, we all experience and not through this level, but that's what makes us adults. It's not about how old we are. It's not about, uh, you know, what we've experienced. It's it's really about the ability to to examine and live in the gray. You're right. And I like the idea of you talking about it in terms of a film that's painted in gray, because it does make it unusual among American films. I mean, the idea that you could have a film that's about possibly a dad molesting his daughter and concretely at least being inappropriate with her. And not have it be, like, so simple is wild. Like, just on the face of it, especially in a country like ours, where we are very, very strict about our moral code. You know, and where our moral code on things like that is pretty simple. Um, To have a film that's like, what if it isn't? Like, is, is wild as hell, to be honest. But that's life, right? That is the way and that is the world that we all live in, right? There, you know, you can be two things. Sam Jackson is a beautiful choice for this role because... You want to like him. There is something about him that pulls you in. It's not, he's not a despicable person. Like I think about like, you know, these horror movies like The Stepfather. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, you know, they're evil or, you know, like, you know, that sweaty drunk. Like, I love the way Sam Jackson plays drunk in this film. It's at that bar scene, you know, right before he gets shot. Um, you look at his eyes and but he's not like, oh, he was drunk. And you didn't know like he could have been incredibly drunk in that moment where this, 
this moment happened? Did he mistake her for his wife because she has the same hairstyle? Like, there's so many things at play, and you can go on his side, you can go on her side. There, you know, and I love to me to have that debate after you leave a film, and I think that's what makes a film uh, so much more provocative. Is that you must deal with it. You must unpack it after you finish watching it. Maybe that is the Tennessee Williams of this after all, now that I'm thinking mm. about it. Because, yeah, this is a special Sam Jackson performance, right? Because he's not just playing like the cool for school, like bad guy or like the suave, funny hitman. Like, I don't think I've seen Sam Jackson get a role that is honestly this like sexy and glamorous yeah, and romantic absolutely. and interesting and flawed he's this is almost like his best shot at getting a marlon brando stanley kowalski kind of character with that much raw sex appeal and that much danger to him and flaws I well mean, let me throw this to you do you think that tennessee williams needed to create hyper uh, realized situations to tell the stories that he was going to tell because at that time he couldn't effectively tell a story without it having this kind of melodrama undercurrent where here you can tell a much more grounded story because we have evolved as a culture. We are able to to see it a little bit more. So maybe in that way, like if Tennessee Williams was writing in 1997, maybe Streetcar would be less... You know, the story would be the same, but the but the performances might be a little bit smaller. Oh, that's and interesting. It, like it wouldn't have to live so much in the in the world of allegory or like Yeah. Yeah. Because the you're right. Like I think Cassie Lemons is after making something that's poetic, but still credible. Like it there isn't a lot of, I think, on the nose dialogue in this film. It's not a lot of like you did exactly this and I'm telling you exactly why and I'm slapping you in the face for this reason, you know. Uh, even here where giant things are happening, it's still going pretty unsaid. Even in like even in even in that key scene with like Sicily and and her dad, they don't really talk about it. You know, he pushes her, he slaps her, they don't they're not like, and here's why. And let's right. it, there's so much left unsaid even between them. Well, I think that that is how most families are. I, you know, we're talking a little bit about this idea that COVID has brought families together or maybe allowed us to reach out. And I, well, let me just say, I'll say that COVID for me has given me this moment to be at home a little bit more, to think about my family, to think about myself. And I've been looking at certain things in my life. And now as a parent and as an adult, you look back and, well, wait, that doesn't make sense. My, my childhood version of this story doesn't make sense. And then all of a sudden, I'm asking my dad, I'm asking my mom, wait, do you remember that? I'm like, oh, well, that didn't happen like that. It was more like this. And you're like, oh, of course. And I think the first time I really ever realized that was when I went to the doctor uh, as an adult, like probably in you know college. And they were like, well, tell me your family history. And I started saying my family history, but they're going, oh, that doesn't make sense. Like, oh, he, no, like what people tell you why people die or or what happened is the child version, but no one ever goes back and goes, oh, by the way, we told you all this stuff when you were 10 and 12, but now that you're 21, the truth of it was he was an alcoholic or the truth of it was, you know, it's like it kind of comes out differently uh, years later, but it, you have to uncover it. You almost are an archaeologist to your own family history. It's true. And we get to actually see that even start to be enacted, even in little ways, like right at the beginning when... Eve is trying to explain to Sicily that she saw her dad 
trying to have sex with another lady, you get to watch Sissy just put the most PG spin on it. Tell her mm-hmm. everything is fine. And like how a lie gets immediately made up and then becomes part of like the permanent story of this family. They came in to get some more wine. And daddy told her a joke. <laughs> and she fell against him laughing. And they woke you up. You sure? I'm certain. I mean, what would Daddy want with Maddie Moreau? Mama's the most beautiful woman in the whole world. I mean, this is like a really dumb example of this. But, Paul, I mean, I don't know if you've ever known that I have like a big birthmark on my shoulder. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I got this little guy right here on my shoulder. When I was like when I was a kid, my memory of getting it is that I was hit by a firework. That like fell from the sky when I was watching um, the Blue Water Parade. It's like a big festival that was in Michigan. And uh-huh. it burned me. And then like a week later, I remember noticing that firework and being like, oh, that's interesting. And then I finally asked my mother about it. And she said it was a smallpox vaccination scar, which it's just, it just, it just, it clearly isn't. Right. You know, because those look completely differently. And realizing I will never know what this thing is. And if I always had it, because I can't trust anyone to tell me the truth, because maybe nobody mo- knows and maybe it doesn't matter. Like, that's the smallest weird, that's a very small, dumb example, but I think about it every time I look at my birthmark. No, absolutely. It's, we are also giving over our history to flawed narrators, Mm -hmm. right? Because we look to our parents, but our parents aren't telling us, you know, there's no one there watching, which is what makes the story of this movie even more interesting. Because um, I believe it was about a year ago or maybe two years ago, Ebert Fest brought uh, Cassie back to show this film, but the director's cut of this film, which is incredibly different than the theatrical cut, in the sense that there is someone who can tell the truth. Um, She had another character in this movie, and I'm going to probably bastardize it a little bit, but, you know, this is partially autobiographical in the sense of, like, it has elements of things in her family while not necessarily being the story of her family, if that makes sense, right? Uh, You know, this is her remembering her childhood trips that she took from Louisiana, and she wanted to write a story about these people who were like royalty. You know, they were the upper crust of this community. And so she kind of, you know, infused all these little elements. But one of the things that she talked about, I was listening to this interview with her, was um, someone who had special needs and lived in, like, lived upstairs. And all she said that I knew about my my cousin or her uncle was that we always said goodnight to him, but he never really came downstairs. He couldn't really speak. And I remember that in my family too, there was someone who Aunt May like was in the house. We never really saw her. And she like, it was a weird way that people took care of people with special needs. You know, it was like they hid them away. So the long story short is this character existed in this house. It was a character that lived in this house in a wheelchair and couldn't speak. He was mute. Yeah, and you, you see bits of him and you're like, what, what is he doing here? And then the version I saw, this she like yes. says goodnight to him. And then that's mm-hmm. kind of it. You're like, what is, what, what, right. what is so, happening? So that character was throughout the film and that character saw what happened. But the only person who knows the truth is the person who can't speak. And uh, they forced her to cut that out of the film. So much so that it was right before the film premiered. So she wrestled with it. They used CGI to kind of eliminate this character uh, because 
Mark Amin, and this is kind of a crazy thing. I just did a movie with Mark Amin. Uh, he was the producer of this film. He, he's produced a lot of interesting things. I mean, he's produced uh, movies like Leprechaun Goes to Space and Miles Davis, like, you know, uh, or Miles, uh, you know, like he's gone all over the gamut. And he was like, I feel strongly you need to take this character out. And she restored it uh, for this cut. And it's really interesting because I wanted to talk to you about that idea. Like, so she puts in someone who does know the truth, but can't say it. Now, is that strong or stronger than what is happening in the film? In your opinion, I want, I have an opinion about it, but what do you think? Like having that character there, does that add to it? Well, let's hear what she has to say, because I actually found a clip of her talking about it. And so Uncle Tommy, the guy in the wheelchair, that was based on my great uncle. So the character had a lot of resonance for me. And in fact, the story is completely different with him and without him. So the release cut does not have Uncle Tommy in it. Uh, and so, so you can imagine how, uh, how urgent this was to me because it, the story is actually different because Uncle Tommy was the mute witness. So, so actually the truth was contained in some person. And in the release cut, because he's gone, which actually took a lot of... Um, we actually had to CGI him out in the mirror. and There's actually a shot in the release uh, cut that he's in, but you kind of don't notice it. Um, but, it, yeah, because it, it was very difficult to remove him. Um, but uh, that, was, that was a compromise that I made um, uh, for the person that was financing the film. It was something he felt very strongly about. Uh, but it did, change, it did change the film because then there is no truth, which I also like. You know, there is no truth. Um, but it, it was very emotional at the time. My post-production crew had a T-shirt made with an empty wheelchair that said, where's Tommy? <laughs> yeah, I, love that, I love the T-shirt protest. I'm all about a T-shirt protest. Like, I love it. We had another T-shirt protest on another film. What was it? I forget. Was it Jaws? There's some kind of T-shirt oh, protest. Oh, yeah. There was something about, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I think I'm it all, was Jaws. <laughs> I'm all about a T-shirt protest. I mean, I'm with her. Like, it really does seem to shift the focus. Like if it, if it becomes that the uncle knows what happened and nobody asks him, then it's a story about reaching out to your family and trying to connect to them. But if he's not there at all, then it is more of a story about the impossibility of knowing anything. And I find but, that more relatable to me because I, I very much agree. To me though, my issue, and I, when I first heard it, I was like, oh, I'm so glad she restored that. That's such an integral piece of the story. And I'm like, no, it's not. If he can't speak, Right. Then what is he going to say? How is he going to communicate such a complex issue? Right. Like and I think that that was part of it. Like. I think she put him there, or at least from what I've read, to say, well, someone definitely does know the truth. Um, and maybe that burdens that character. And maybe that's what I'm missing. I haven't seen the director's cut. So maybe that's another element of a of having information about something and not being able to do anything about it, which is a, a, another big thing, especially in families with abuse and, you know, this idea of, of literally being trapped. Uh, so I, I appreciate that. But as far as a character, like if the character could speak, if it was like a Boo Radley type of character and they didn't ask him, then I totally agree with you. Oh but, my gosh, I didn't even think about that, that he is like a Boo Radley. Yes, but... That's a, that, yeah, yeah, she just mapped a Boo Radley in here. Yeah, but Boo Radley could speak, right? This character was more... 
mm. of an observer in a way, right? And Boo Radley was hot. Let's not forget that. It was <laughs> weirdly course. hot. Let's never forget Boo Radley is hot. But I mean, so I don't know. I, I, was, conf- I was conflicted on it because obviously it's her vision, so I'm not saying her vision is wrong. But I think it is, to your point, way more satisfying that, uh, yes, there is truth but we won't know the truth. And even if someone does know the truth, does it make a difference? Because do you believe that person? Are you interpreting it? Like, you know, once someone can articulate the truth, it is going through the filter of their own way of seeing it. I mean, as you get further and further away from an event, you mythologize it yourself, I, I think. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I wonder how much of our point of view on this is coming from right now living through a time where truth feels incredibly hard to grab. Where even facts don't seem like facts to half of people. And we're like, ugh. Like, I still believe in truth more than I ever did. But it's like it feels almost like an act of defiance to believe that there is truth to something. Well, truth is uncomfortable. And when you don't have to believe in something that makes you uncomfortable, then life is easier. Like I'm a big I love a conspiracy theory. I love to sit and listen and go, ooh, ah, ah. But I don't often believe in conspiracy theories, right? I, I'm I wanna hear the ghost story. I wanna I wanna hear the the story behind the thing. But what's what I always think conspiracy theories do is take something incredibly complex and simplify it. Why did the World Trade Center go down? Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't just a random act of terrorism that, you know, could happen at any time. It was so calculated. And if I know it's so calculated, whew, then it won't happen again. But if we were to live life knowing that at any given point, any one of us could die, a brick could fall on our head, it 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 creates parameters to keep us, I think, a little bit more protected. I don't know. This is a longer conversation, but I think the idea of like what these stories do and how they help us. So if Megan Good is lying, uh, then she's created a story where she never has to look at anything with uh, an eye where she might be guilty, right? Like she's created a narrative and told that narrative. Same thing for Sam Jackson. If he is guilty of this and his story is true or, you know, uh, or false, you know, everyone's protecting themselves and kind of uh, they're telling their own story where they're the hero. And and that's how we get through life sometimes, I think. You know, yeah. when you, uh, why did we break up? Well, I'm going to tell you that other person was bad. You know, very rarely does a person go, well, it's my fault. Yeah. It may have been my fault, but that person did this other thing. You know, it's like we always we're always the victim in our own stories to us to a certain extent. And plus, there's that extra layer on top of it, which is maybe Sam Jackson is lying to himself. Maybe he right. legit just doesn't know because he was that drunk. Right. Maybe he he never knew. He cannot figure it out. And the same thing in a way with Sicily, like she's so young, like 
it seems like this is probably her first kiss. You know, she's been really protected her entire life. Her family seems like her whole world. We don't really get to see her hanging out with other kids. You know, so she might not have any idea. Like she might, you know, it might have been such an emotional night. She was so angry already at her mom. She'd been crying. Like, can she even know really well, what happened or what a, what a kiss like that is? Like what a kiss that is in a, if she doesn't right. know what a good kiss is, how can she know what a bad kiss is? Or, or, you know, I think oftentimes these kids are trapped in the house, right? And their, their life is being cut off. And so they're acting out, they're trying different things, they're growing, they're, they're making mistakes. Like we are still, they are still children, right? They're not adults. They're not as calculated as adults. And who knows what's right and wrong at that point? Um, I told the story on how did this get made and constantly is brought up to be uh, a part of being made fun of. Uh, for oh, me, but I, are we I, going where I think we're going? Uh, yeah, but I'll say it again. You know, like when I was a kid, I watched a lot of The Love Boat and I always thought that like the way that you would kiss somebody is like an open mouth kiss. So like one night when I was like six, five or six years old, my mom was like putting me down for bed and like goes to give me a kiss, a kiss on the lips, which is always like I give my kids kisses on the lips. You know, it's like, you know, like not every not every waking moment, but just, you know, I kiss my kids. I love my kids. Um, But in my mind, I went to go like to parody what I've seen on TV. Not like I wasn't attracted to my mom. I wasn't trying to be sexual with my mom. I just didn't know that that I was like, Oh, I'm doing this wrong. I watched the love boat and this is the way that you do it. I don't understand the difference of that. I'm not, you know, I'm five or six years old. Uh, so you really use p- podcasts as a confessional booth. I mean, who cares? It's my story. I mean, I'm not embarrassed <laughs> by it. I got darker shit. I got darker shit. I don't talk about. Um, but, uh, but I don't know. There's like, there's an element of that in there too. And I, I kind of want to point to two scenes and and maybe unpack what she's trying to tell with these two scenes. And let me throw them out to you and we can kind of approach it either way. The scene where she comes home with her hair done like her mom. Okay, so that's an interesting scene. And I think that's telling us something. And then the scene with Sam Jackson at the bar confronting the man or the man confronting him about having sex with his wife, right? So those are two interesting scenes that tell us a lot about these two characters, right? And and I think, let's talk about the, the hair one first. Like, so she is trying to be her mom, right? To a certain degree. You know, she's getting her hair done. She is trying to get the attention of her father. I'm not, you know, you're a woman. I don't know that relationship with a daughter and her father. I know that you had a close relationship with your dad. Like, But like, what is that? about like can we talk about that a little bit and like you know the the, yeah. the problems in that or maybe the issues there yeah yeah exactly i mean well first i think the hair in this film is so interesting you know i mean because they're related like the two small kids have you know that kind of red cast to their hair mm-hmm. you know they look they look a lot alike and it's megan good who doesn't seem to fit in with them from the beginning you, you kind of see that she does look like her mom, that she's like following in her right. mom's footsteps from the beginning. She's the one who looks exactly like her mom and they don't. And yeah, you know, I come from like a three person household. It was me, my mom and my dad. And honestly, talking out loud about it, like there was a lot of jockeying for my dad's attention, you know, like right. who was his favorite. And it's very strange to have an interpersonal kind of jealousy that happens, yeah. like who gets the most attention. But you see how it plays out here, the way that Sam Jackson almost uses himself as like a lamp. You know, when he turns himself towards a character, they light up. And when he turns himself away from a character, like he turns away from his um, from the grandmother when she's giving him a lecture at the table. You watch him, him just shut her down. Like his presence, his attention is like the greatest gift he can give to anybody. And 
it's so wild how in this film, it's like we all kind of subconsciously know what's happening. Like when when um, Sissy comes home and her hair's all done to look exactly like her mom's, yeah. they're able to get mad at her because she's been breaking quarantine. I can't believe this movie had quarantine in the middle of it too. I completely forgot about that. Like what happens when the kids are quarantined because the mom thinks that they're going to die by getting hit by a train um, by or like a bus car and they're stuck inside and so frustrated. But like, Well, I mean, and that idea too, like that, that, there is this element in this movie about people who can see and what do they see and what, and that's another part of like, what am I seeing versus what is actually happening and how you can maybe have something that you, well, that's what it actually meant. You know, that idea of like, I dreamt it, I saw it, you know, that that's another, just an idea of that. I love that. Yeah, no, exactly. But that they get mad at her under the guise of like, you left and didn't tell us where you were going when they're really mad at her because they all know that it's weird. She got her hair done to look like her mom. Like they all, and they won't actually, nobody says like, why are you trying to look like me as you're competing with me for my husband, your dad's like opinion? And, but they use a different guise of telling her she's in trouble. Yeah. I mean, and I think this idea of her wanting to be like her mom, if it's like single white female, it's weird. If it's a child, it's not. And I think we can also bring this back to Rebel Without a Cause. Remember that moment where Natalie Wood kisses her dad? He's like, don't kiss me like that. You know, it's oh, like, that's right. Right. Yeah. You know, there's this this idea of this is the man in your life who does take care of you. And as you are growing and becoming and again, I can't speak to this because I'm not a woman, but I, I but I'm saying this idea of like I get the I get the confusion. I get the jockeying for attention. I there is a you know, there's a reason why there's mama's boys and daddy's girls. Like, you know, there there is this. These are the first uh figures of the opposite sex in our life that that love us and take care of us and that we look to and you know we're trying to figure it out you know it's like i've i've heard my son say i want to marry my mom i've heard my son say i want to marry his brother i heard my son say i want to marry me it's like he doesn't understand the differences of anything it's sort of like i love these people i want them to be around like it's they're wrestling with these bigger issues you know what you know what is love and love is different in 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 so many different ways you know you know, that's so interesting. Maybe I'm looking at this just then through my exact lens. Mm-hmm. But I, I thought that scene in Rebel Without a Cause where Natalie Wood kisses her dad was kind of bogus mm-hmm. to me because I was like, I don't really get that she's that childish about it. She's a little bit old, I think. She's like, you know, four years older maybe than Cicely, mm-hmm. like old enough that's a little weird. But also the dad's just not that cool. You know, like well, who cares? I mean, this is a, well, like, I mean. A, but really, like who cares? Whereas, like, this dad is so charismatic. And I have a little, you know, my dad was incredibly charismatic, too. Like, my dad was kind of, like, the center of his social world. This dad mm-hmm. is the center of the social world of this town. And, like, you want that dude to pay attention to you more. Like, Natalie Wood's dad sucks. Like, why? He's not Yeah. I mean, look, I, like, that's a, I, I think that you don't know, like, <laughs> you don't know what you got until you get out into the real world, too. I mean, like, you know, sometimes you'd be like, this is the best hamburger I've ever eaten. And then all of a sudden you have, like, a great hamburger. Like, oh. All right. It's like, to me, I didn't realize how poor I grew up until someone looked at a picture of my house and they're like, oh, this looks like uh, like you grew up in a trailer park. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I did. <laughs> like, but in my in my mind, I was like, it, you know, I didn't grow up in a trailer, but it, like it, it's a pretty dumpy area. But in my mind, it was different. Like, you don't know it. Like, it's easy to just do it in hindsight. So like, that guy could have been a piece of crap, but uh, or not charismatic, but it's still her piece of crap, uh, you know, until she sees other. Okay, but she's little, you know, she's got like cool dudes around her. She's, you know. Yeah, but I don't know. I don't know. I mean, look, but also I thought that spoke of the dad. 
feeling uncomfortable yeah. around his daughter. Mm-hmm. She's getting older and maybe more sexual. And he's like, I don't, I don't want to go there. I, I, yeah. I almost thought that was more indicative of the father, less about her bringing him in and him protecting himself. No, that's true. And actually, in what we do know here that's very different is that Samuel Jackson as a father is incredibly inappropriate. Like when mm-hmm. he gets drunk, he starts trying to talk to her about how he had sex to like yeah. conceive her brother. <laughs> Daddy, I think you drank. Mm. I've delivered babies drunker. Conceived babies much drunker. <laughs> Ever tell you about the night we made Pope? No. I got in a fight with some knucklehead over at King's and came to under the pool table. You know, Roz was sore at me about some things, so she hadn't spoken to me in about a week. I thought, damn. Woman finds out I've been drinking and fighting, she's gonna leave me. Well, anyway, they take me home, and she sees me all messed up, and she starts weeping and kissing me and kissing me and weeping, and nine months later, Poe. I mean, no matter how you slice it, that is, you don't do that, right? No, and I think, you know, and that's what brings me to the other scene I want to talk about, which is this idea of who he is we're often seeing him through the eyes of his child. And we are literally seeing the daughter watch this interaction. But this is a moment where he is communicating with another adult. She is a bystander in this. It's not to her. I love the way it's framed. I love the way she pops in. But that scene is really interesting. It tells me a little bit about this guy, which is he does push. He pushes, you know, most people would probably back off. And he goes forward. He gets himself shot, in my opinion. Right. And that's something that like the film really does a good job of showing you that he is not going, he's going to do what he wants to do. He's not respectful. He is, even when guilty, going to position himself as innocent or doing nothing wrong. And he's stoking a fire. You know, it's like when he says goodbye to that woman that he's been having the affair with, he knows why he's doing that. He's he's stoking that the man he and, and that's what gets him killed. You know, so I don't know what that what that says, because it's like he also wrote this down. This is his remembrance, his remembrance of it. He wrote it down. So do we believe that more or I don't know. I don't know. Like, Or do we say, here's a man who could have anybody. He is very cocksure. He's. He's charismatic. Why would he ever do this to his child? He's he's not, I mean, not to say that you can't be a pedophile or incestuous if you also are having other relationships, but I'm just saying it like we're definitely building him in one direction. Um, but maybe he just wants to conquer everything. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you definitely get the sense of a guy who feels too big for his town. Right. Like he lives in the nicest house. He throws the biggest parties. He's the fancy doctor. But he almost feels like he's acting out against something. Like he's frustrated that something he didn't get, that there's so, that he could have more or that he could be bigger. Well, he do seems, you think he seems like he has an unending appetite, right? Well, do you think it's because he's a black man trapped in a a black world? Like, you know, there's only so the the ceiling only extends that far. Like he can't go into the other world. I and mean, what's so interesting about this movie is there's no white people in the film. You know, it this you know, and it doesn't make a big deal, but this movie isn't about race. I mean, in many ways it's it's kind of amazingly wonderful that it is it's just telling the story. It's not feeling it has to talk about, you know, the outside world, but I think that that could be 
a motivating factor to his discomfort. I mean, he's a big fish in a small pond, and the small pond is the color of his skin. Like, he's only going to get to a certain level. Uh, and so he's going to run run ragged uh, over that, you know, in that pond, or, or, or just assert his control in every which way he can. Oh, that's interesting, because you're right. I'm imagining now how almost obvious it seems that like another filmmaker would have added the scene of like them going on an errand and him getting yep. stopped by a white cop right yep. doesn't that uh-huh. feel like that scene would Absolutely. be in a worse version of this movie this movie is a story about family right and 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 race plays a part on their social status but also in a very amazing way like we talked about in Ganjan Hess it's also presenting like a family that is rich, that is, this is a well to, this is one of the well to do families, you know, in this area, but they're not associating with white people. They're only associating with, you know, people of their same skin color, you know? So it's, it's, it's interesting for what it's saying about race without actually having that, I'm going to hit you over the head with this hammer kind of a scene. Yeah. I mean, I think so much of the quiet power of this film comes from, you know, existing in a world on its own terms. You know, right. like, it, this is a believable world. It doesn't feel like she's creating, creating like some sort of fantasy landscape. You know, like um, Cassie Lemons herself, like, ha, you know, grew up with spending a lot of time in the South. Um, but it does also feel, you know, influenced perhaps a bit by like Cassie Lemons herself as an actress. You know, like we've seen her before, by the way. Remember, we've oh, seen yes. her. Yeah, we saw her in a film that we talked about last season, um, Silence of the Lambs. It, in fact, here's a clip to refresh everybody's memory. She's the person who helps Jodie Foster, break down what's weird about this case. Clarice, doesn't this random scattering of sight seem desperately random? Like the elaboration of a bad liar, Ty and a collector. Desperately random? What does he mean? Not random at all, maybe. But at this point in her career, you know, she was realizing that as an actress, she was only getting parts that she called, you know, like, quote unquote, like the black best friend of the lead. Mm-hmm. And she was getting really frustrated. I think this is a story we've heard before in other films um, by black filmmakers that if she didn't write her own material or say the things that she wanted to say, nobody was going to say them. You know, she'd hit the limit of the part she was being offered. And it was like she felt the responsibility of at first just writing something. She just thought she would write this script and then like somebody else would direct it. But then she found herself getting emotionally attached and she wanted to be the person to make this story come to life. Yeah, but no one wanted to make it either. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, I heard this amazing story. There's a reason why she ended up with the producer of Leprechaun, uh, Leprechaun in Space, my uh, my recent uh, director. Um, but uh, was because no one felt confident enough to make it. She, the script was so good and people loved the script that they wanted to meet with her. It was a, it was a calling card. But then when it came to actually making the movie, it was like, ah, I don't know. And then... She, they were told like, well, if you could get a big name actor attached, then we could do it. Then she gets Sam Jackson attached. By the way, interesting part how she got Sam Jackson attached. Her husband played the Sam Jackson character in a short where they just shot that scene of him by the bed uh, with the patient and then sending the daughter out to, you know, go to the bone zone. Uh, And Sam Jackson saw that and was like, I want to play that role. So Sam comes in, he starts... Uh, you know, he attaches himself. She brings it around town again. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, now that you have him, uh, we we still don't know. We're not sure. And then the movie kind of dies again. And then this is when she gets a phone call in the middle of the day from a guy in London. And he's like, let's go make this movie. Uh, you know, and and I think the reason why the the film is the way it is, uh, not the full director's cut, is because I think that she did feel beholden, even though she didn't agree with the way that Mark asked her to cut out that character 
she felt like she had to do it because this is the person who believed in her vision and he felt strongly about it. Yeah, I mean, apparently, like when she was going with the screenplay, she was being told that there were six reasons why nobody wanted to make her a film. You know, kind of seven. Like one, everybody at the time only wanted to finance like a black film if it was either, as she called it, like a hood movie or a sex comedy. And she wanted okay. to do something that was neither one of those things. But then, the, like the six six reasons were like one that yes, this had an entirely black cast. Two, it was a story about women. You know, it is so much, and I want to talk about it with you more, like how these women interact around the orbit of a man. Yeah. Um, Three, it was from a child's point of view, but it was not a child's movie. Like, you're not going to sell tickets to this to children, even though it's about a child. Um, Four, the subject matter is just so complicated. Five, she was a first-time director. And six, she was also pregnant, too. And they're like, we don't want a pregnant lady first-time director. That's just crazy. And it, it really did come down to Sam Jackson stepping in. And I want to give him so much credit here because he's doing this film like really right when he's at his earning peak. You know, he, this is a guy who like, yeah, I mean, less than 10 years ago, he was barely scraping by. He was really wrestling heavily with addiction. He had just straightened up like what, seven years before this film was made, just in time to like get underway with this huge string of hits, you know, Jurassic Park and Pulp Fiction and like the Die Hard movies and Time to Kill and Long Kiss Goodnight. I mean, and then he does this. Like, he uses his name right when he could be pulling down huge paychecks to get this financed. Yeah. I think a lot of it is because he saw that this character was not like the guys he got. You know, and if he wanted to play a different type of role than, like, cool guy with a gun, um, this was his chance. But it's really cool to just hear him talk about what it means to have that clout. I mean, this is him here discussing it on Producing. I read the script a couple of years ago, and um, I liked it. But at that time, I guess I wasn't a big enough name to get it done, and the script was being shopped around, and Danny Glover got it, and he wanted to do it, but he also wanted to direct it. She wanted to direct it, so she held on to it, and they kept shopping it. And it eventually came back around to me, and, and I was a big enough to make name. It happen. Yeah, I was, a, I was a big enough name to get $3 million to get it made, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we made it for. Three million dollars. Uh, Three million dollars, yeah, which is a shoestring budget. Yeah. yeah, and we fought, we cried, we did all kinds of things to get this film done. It's, it's called the hot art house film of 1997, but yeah. it's a, more than that. Yeah, it's it's a a wonderful little story that that crosses cultures in a whole lot of ways. I mean, a lot of people understand this film. By the way, he said that when he was trying to really understand who this character was, like he could understand the alcohol addiction because he'd been there. But as for the womanizing, he decided to substitute for himself workaholism because he was such a workaholic. Still is, oh, I, I think, a workaholic. Yeah. And yeah. in his commitment to doing as much as he can takes him away from his family and his kids. And they, that is like the thing that they're competing with him for, for his attention. I mean, that moment where he says, like, you know, look, people just don't get sick during the weekdays. Like he's working on the weekends. He's, you know, he is uh, very much a... You know, yeah, he's an, he, like, and that's what also makes him kind of good. Like, you know, like you, like you feel like, yes, I mean, but maybe he's just getting away to have sex, but I don't know. They're like, you know, people are not black and white. And this movie, again, going back to doubt, it gives you this thing where you, you, if you like him, do you feel bad about liking him? You know, it's, and that I think is what family is. Like these people in our lives that, Oh my gosh. Like, for example, my grandmother has a lot of problematic stances. She's 90 plus years old. 
Uh, there's no changing her mind. I've had these conversations with her. And, you know, and conventional wisdom would be like, well, you know, you eradicate that person from your life. But you're like, but it's also, there's all these other elements that are interesting. And, it's, and how do you work within this family structure where there are things that you know are wrong and that you have to you have to live with on on some level like you or you know or sacrifice something entirely i don't know and and i don't know if there's a great answer to that and I, i'm sure people are like dump them dump them and but it's hard for people to dump people in their family i mean you know um absolutely hard it's hard to it's hard to uh to feel like people are a straight up villain um you know, and, and I and I think because we have a long history with them as well. It's true. I mean, so much of what motivates, um, what seems to motivate Samuel L. Jackson's character is that he doesn't want his wife to leave him. But you also sense that she's really not going to leave him anyways. No. You know, like he's like, no. I was like, oh, she's mad at me and I had to get her forgiveness. And she's mad at me and I had to get her forgiveness. She's not. She's really never going to leave him, I think. But what she will do and has already done is she'll see him for who he is. I love that monologue she gives about, like, thinking she was marrying a fixer and realizing who she had married. I suppose he fixed it. He knows how to fix things. When I first met Lewis, I watched him set this boy's leg and falling out of a tree. And I said to myself, here's a man who can fix things. He's a healer. He'll take care of me. So I leave my family and I move to this swamp and I find out he's just a man. As we're talking about this, I just had something hit me. I hadn't really put this all together. You know, we're talking about truth and lies. And one of the elements that we just touched on a little while ago was this idea like what seers, people who have this ability, like I see you getting hit by a train I, or a car, you know, this idea of like who has the power. And, the, and there's this mystical element, this, you know, uh, this woman with the like the clay on her face and, you know, the, this voodoo nature underneath. And there's something about that, that culture. And you can substitute any religion you want there, too, which is like, OK, I'm going to embrace religion. I'm going to hold on to it because you know, and whatever that religion is, let's say in this, it's it's this idea, I see something, I, I feel something. It, it makes your intuition uh, valid. Like your intuition is your intuition, but it, it's not, we don't know if it's true or false, it's just intuition. But when you have a belief that I actually see things and I have this power, then it is true. And it's like this whole idea of like, she saw this. So everyone is trapped in the house. Everyone's trapped in the house. So then they start acting, you know, they're almost at each other's throats in different ways or, or they're, you know, they're wrestling with more complex issues because they, they can't get out. But it's somebody's truth. It's not everybody's truth. And that girl, the young Megan Good is fighting against that. You know, it's it's her fake news. You know, it's like, OK, how do I get out of this? And then, you know, and then she gets into this other situation and then somebody else like, are we always living under this idea? Like it's your fake news if it's your story, but my news, maybe your fake news. Does that make sense? It's like, it's sort of like we all are struggling to live under our own truth, but all of our, is all of our truth just a lie 
to make us feel good. Does that make sense? I know it's a big idea, but I was like, <laughs> you know, it's like, like our truth is not in our truth. Our truth is just there to protect us and make us feel better about the choices that we've made or the choices that we will make. Well, yeah. And then sometimes you can get confronted with the truth and not believe it, you know, because right. There's two psychics in this movie, right? You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's Elzora who's played by the great Diane Carroll. And I, I just, you know, I need to say Amazing. like, Give her a total shout out in this. You know, she's a really fascinating character. I mean, for people who don't know the actress's like backstory, she's a person who becomes famous back in 1954 when she wins like the American Idol of early television as a teenage right. singer. She becomes a model. She then she becomes doing like Carmen Jones and Porgy and Bess and working with Sidney Poitier and working with Dorothy Dandridge and everybody. Um, she becomes the model for the very first black Barbie doll. And then she becomes the first black woman to win a Tony and she becomes the first black woman to have her own TV show. That's not about being a maid. You know, she's just this incredible figure. So to have her show up in here, it's really like this all star. Everybody is amazing list. But so she plays Elzora, the witch. I don't know if Elzora is like a a good witch or a bad witch. I guess I'm talking about it in terms of of Wizard of Oz traditions, you know, um, that, but that she borrows from ancient tradition, at least to make herself look more authentic. You know, like the kind of yeah. Yoruba painted white dramatic eye makeup that she wears. But there's that scene where she sits down with the mother and tells the mother exactly the truth of everything that's going to happen. But the mother doesn't hear it right. There is an end to your problem. Though not one you imagined. Stay and wait. Wait. Sometimes a soldier fall on his own sword. In three years' time, you will be happy again. Three years. Look to your children. Dala. The mother hears, you know, like, look to your children and you'll be happy again. And she just interprets it in the most, like, fake punishing way to herself. Like, you're telling me nothing's going to change. You're telling me to spend time with my children. But the facts are the same. She just can't interpret them the way that Elzora means them. Yeah. Well, I mean, because she... Again, it's making your own truth, right? You hear it, you make it, and and we associate it. And this is why we've talked about this, not to get deeply into like politics, but like this idea, like what Twitter is able to do or what your news is able to do, what we are so able now to ingest how we want it to be heard. And you can switch out and we can swap out. We do it all the time. Now what's happening is, is like, I think that media has realized that that's a great way to also gear their shows. Like we'll have a better audience if we just gear a narrative that people want to hear or like to hear, and we can divide it like that. It's no longer what is true. It's what people want to hear. And that's what we all do. We all do it. I mean, it's, and that's the other part of it. I mean, and you would hope that when it comes to something that is uh, political or something that is national or something that is, you know, like, like COVID, we are hearing uh, one universal truth. But that's not the case. You're right, which means we have to talk about my favorite character in this movie. And okay. I can't believe we made it this far. And we haven't talked about how amazing Moselle is. Oh, so I mean, good. Moselle, the ants. The other psychic in this film who 
goes back and forth between seeming actually really accurate. Like when she tells that lady, oh, I know where your son is. He's a drug addict. He's in Detroit. Yeah. Be there at this hospital next Tuesday, like predicting the future of where he's yeah. going to be. You're like, oh, she's got this. But then you like, you know, later on, she also gives that woman ingredients on how to make a spell. And then she's like kind of rolling her eyes like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We'll see if it helps. She's not going to sue me either way. Right, and, right, right. And, and I can't tell if she's either like a great reader of people and knows what they want to hear. If she does have some powers, she seems to. The way she like holds out her hand, almost like a threat, like, oh, you won't tell me what you're thinking? Hold my hands and then I will tell you what you're thinking, which could either be a threat or a bluff. Like but if you, you know, believe that, but, that she's right, you're going to be scared. But, you know, but that's also like the way that... uh like psychics work. I mean, I love that show Penn and Teller bullshit because they kind of debunk psychics. And the way that psychics work is like when you tell, like I, I would say, Amy, I saw a psychic and they said that my grandfather did blank, blank, and blank, and blank. And when, if you were to watch the psychic session, they would say, there's someone in your life that was older that meant a lot to you. And you'd be like, my grandfather. Yes, your grandfather. And, you know, your grandfather said, you know, they, he said something. He always was talking about something that was important. Oh, he loved, well, he loved work, right? He's this. He said they work. So they're, they're kind of like couching these things and, and basing off your reactions and by holding your hands, are your, is your pulse quickening? Is it slowing down? Are you responding? You know, and they can kind of guide themselves on what you wind up doing. And what they kind of prove in this episode is you wind up remembering all the hits and not the misses mm-hmm. and, and, and you leave and you're like, oh, they knew everything. But like, if you were to listen to a transcript, it would be a little bit more transparent. I'm on I mean, that's why now. I'll never go to a psychic because I know I'm incredibly susceptible and whatever oh, they yeah. tell me will stick in my head and I will make it happen. Like if they said you will somehow wind up with 12 cats, I'll be like, shit, well, I guess I better start collecting cats. Like I, I would I, will that into existence. I feel the same exact way. And like, and why, and like, I don't ever want anyone to, I don't want anyone to spoil my fun. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like if I, if I believe that, like, I don't want to have something in my head and be like, oh, that's not the way it was supposed to go or that, you know, because I think it can get, it can grow in there, you know? Yeah. Uh, you but know, yet at the it, same time, like, you know, Moselle is right that a kid is going to get hit and die. And I love that this right. family is so united in being kind of fucked up that when a kid dies, they're celebrating. They're popping champagne. <laughs> and tonight we'll barbecue outside. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mama, these children been in the house for weeks. Eve. Go upstairs and get sister. She hadn't come down all morning. I think she's still mad at me. Sicily! It is not right to celebrate when somebody's child is dead. Because it's like, it's it's setting a freedom. And, but also it's like, you know, there's also uh, these moments of like, well, will a kid get hit by a bus? Yeah, Absolutely. At one point, that will happen. That's right? a small town. Come on, I don't he's not going to get hit by a bus uh, that much. Well, I guess, I guess. But look, you could also say that that moment was Sam Jackson getting hit by the train. Like he wasn't hit by a train, but there, you know, there's a lot of ways you can view what is happening, right? And it's like this idea of like, oh, that is it. That was it. That was what we meant. That that's what I saw. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't not know. That yeah, I, I think yeah. Moselle believes it, honestly, because like oh. Moselle is terrified to marry the oh, man with the yes. world's most ridiculous name on the planet, Julian Greyraven. Yeah. I mean, I, can I say, I like I'm touched that Julian Greyraven is a character because he brings this film 
as much as it gets into the level of like a Twilight film. Mm-hmm. I mean, you cannot have a character named Julian Gray. Oh, I sort love of that a guy. Face. I lo- and I love that he is actually played by Cassie Levins' husband, by Bonnie Curtis Hall. He's great. Uh, he's great, but also, but also, I mean, to me, the most cornball scene in the movie is this scene where he, they're talking about could they have children. It's enough that you're here with me. You have made me so happy. But you can't possibly marry me. I can't let that happen. Is it that you don't love me? No. No, it's not that. It's... Bear with me. I'm cursed. I can't have children. I'm barren. You're not there. You're wounded. Here. And it's here that our plant seeds. But but still, like her hesitancy to marry this guy who's going to plant seeds in her heart and give her like children. Yeah. Makes me think she does believe in the curse. Like she at least believes in Elzora that she's a black widow. She believes in the woman she doesn't like. Anyway, I love this character so much. Apparently, when Cassie Lemons wrote the script, she wanted to play Moselle. Like, she wrote Moselle for herself because she has an aunt that was exactly like Moselle. But then she realized she didn't have enough time to grow into the part and do it with the same justice that she thought it deserved. By the way, if we're talking about, like, the passing of batons and how, like, one thing springboards to another, Debbie Morgan got her start on What's Happening, which, as we know, is, like, connected to Cooley High. Yeah, I love that. Well, also, I think we're talking about a time when, you know, this is, like, um, and I heard... Cassie talk about this, so I'm 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 repeating what you said. Like this is a moment of like black film renaissance, right? You know, there is this uh, this moment where it's like, oh, we're supporting black filmmakers, we're making black films, and and there's opportunities out there, and then it dried up again. And she was saying, now we're back in that that zone again, where we're we're supporting that film. But there was a there was a in this 1990s, like Spike Lee is kind of at his, you know, height and things are happening. Like there's this thought of like, oh, we're here now. We're never going to go away again. And then they, it does go away. And she's like, it's very hard to, uh, to feel comfortable in this, in the status that they have, because are they going to be again, just kind of washed out of the, you know, like, will they go out of style again? And it was interesting to hear that story and, and that she's like lived through two renaissances. Like she's, you know, making things right now. And she was making things back then. And, and this idea that like, this is a moment, a perfect storm of like, people want to hear these stories and, and let these smaller stories be told. And I, I, I'm glad that it happened. I'm surprised that it went away because this movie is also a huge hit. I mean, this movie is a big, like brings in people from across the board, which was really interesting to me. No, you're right. Because also in the nineties, and we've talked about this a little bit with like the house party episode too, that there was this kind of this renaissance then led into a lot of typecasting and people only wanted to see like violent movies about what black culture was. And to read interviews with like Journey Smollett on the red carpet, when she's like 10 or 11 talking about why this film matters, she comes at it from exactly the correct point of view that like, she says um, to this interviewer, like, I don't know anybody who's shooting up or shooting at people, you know? Right. And she goes on to say like, Quote, they don't have a problem showing white people differently from movie to movie. The same should happen with black movies. And Journey Smollett, by the way, is like an incredibly brilliant, precocious kid already. You know, this right. is a girl that comes from this artistic family. She, but she's haunting, too. There's something about her that makes her a little bit more like, 
like she's got something that Scout doesn't have. There is like she's innocent, but she's also like creepy. Like, you know what I'm saying? There's something about her. And that's that's actually the way that Diane Carroll kind of described her, too, uh, according to what Cassie Lemon said. Like there is something interesting. Like she's not totally normal. You know, she's not like, she's not pure, like the most pure, like, oh my gosh, she's so coquettish and, you know, simple. Like, I like that she's a little bit more conflicted. Yeah. She's definitely got her share of like negative emotions, which I appreciate. Yeah. And her share of jealousy. And like, who knows if she was the older sister, she'd probably be the one like trying to flirt with her dad. Like, like right. we, you know, she's just younger. She's just saved by being younger. Well, look, I mean, the dad is kind of cultivating that relationship to a way too, right? Well, yeah. And I mean, she said that like for this whole atmosphere for herself, like her grandmother, when she was growing up, her grandmother had been like the first black Mrs. Galveston in Texas. And so she was very steeped in that atmosphere of like the beautiful women of the South and like the graciousness and dignity and the milieu and like the limits of what of that her grandmother also kind of hit her head against. She said that her grandmother, despite being the first black Mrs. Galveston, wound up, you know, cleaning houses, but would always clean houses in beautiful dresses and her hair done and her jewelry on to say like, I am still a worthy right. person. Oh, I love that. You know, yeah. as this like way of always putting her feet in the ground. You know, by the way, like the Smollett family, I had never gotten too deep into like Smollett lore, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize that even though Journey, you know, she's one of the middle children. Um, she has like older siblings. She was actually the one that got the family into acting. That she got a job um, in Full House. Like she'd been modeling since she was a kid. She was modeling like oh, that wow. and stuff. But she got a job in Full House. She like landed a character that had been written for a white girl, and she got the part. Um, and then when she got the part, the whole family was like, "Hold on, this acting thing is kind of interesting." And they yeah. started taking the kids to network tryouts, and then got them. Did you ever watch the Smollett sitcom? No. Oh. <laughs> well, in the nineties, all of the Smollett children. We're in a sitcom. It was called On Our Own. Okay. It was about all of them being orphans and being raised by an older brother. Like the one person that they were related to was this older, older brother. Um, But the older brother trying to keep the family together. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say that this is like a great piece of art. The uh, opening title song is super cornball and ridiculous. But, well... I guess I do like watching the all of the Smollett's, all of them, so many Smollett's in a kitchen, talk oh, about how gosh. their family, you know, makes sandwiches together and doing a rap about it. This is from okay. the pilot. I need to see this. Start your lunches. with the Kardashians because all the kids and their fake characters all have names that start with J. They came up with new J's to make sure everybody had a J that wasn't their own name. And you heard the barking of a bulldog who also had a J name. His name was Jinx. Of course. (laughs) 
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Well, you know, Amy, we've talked so much about it, and this movie is, I think, prime for that. And we know that it was successful, but what was the reaction as this came out? Like, you know, like it, it definitely is stayed in our culture, I think. And, uh, and I hope more people find it, uh, continually, maybe even with this new director's cut, but like, what was the reaction? Like, how was it received? I mean, it got rave reviews, tons of them all across the board. You know, uh, someone else wrote this, which I wanted to say, cause it also reminded me of our show. They said that Cassie Lemon seems to have merged, emerged from nowhere as a full blown genius, like a modern day Orson Welles or Francois Truffaut. Eve's Bayou was like their premier film, Citizen Kane and the 400 Blows, because it combines the freshness of vision with a rare mastery of technique. So it, mm. the raves were big, which means a couple people, of course, had to grumble. Um, like the Sacramento Bee, they said that it starts to unravel just as it becomes interesting. And they say that the narrative loses its observational powers and becomes banal and plotting as one climax and revelation fo- follows another. Um, the, the San Francisco Gate, they liked Samuel L. Jackson, but they mm-hmm. really didn't like the directing and the screenwriting. They said that as a screenwriter, Lemons is able to keep all the plot elements in place, but as a director, she's unable to keep things moving. She gives the essential and the extraneous equal weight and equal time until her picture becomes in its last hour, a grinding ordeal. The slower last it gets, hour. Wow. It's yeah. only an hour and 47 minutes. I know. Yeah. Says the slower it gets, the more precious are the voiceovers assuring the audience that it's seeing something deep and full of import. Eve's Bayou becomes a swamp of a picture hardly worth slogging through. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. And look, everyone's going to not like something. Well, yeah. But you know what it reminded me of? Like that kind of talk. Is it this actually made me think of Tokyo Story a little more because there is something in the camera work here that reminded me of Tokyo Story. There is a lot of stillness in observation, you know, a lot of patience. You know, Cassie Lemons talked about that a little bit herself, that she wanted to make a film that you know, had a slow pace kind of like the 70s or like art house films. It was something she really had to fight her producer against. I mean, this is her talking about it here. It was very, very important, every single frame, how it looked, where they stood in front of the window, how the characters used their bodies. You know, I mean, how it, nobody is, is using a lot of hand gestures. I mean, it's very, very controlled. I, I controlled it, that languidly paced, deliberate thing that Eve's Bayou had. And we're extremely specific about it. And that drives actors crazy. It's a beauty. It gives a beautiful look. It drives your actors crazy. And some respond better to it than others. Samuel, you know, does not like you controlling every single, you know, place that he has to stand in the scene. So we, Amy and I made a decision because in Eve's Bayou, you know, is absolutely us. We blocked the whole thing. I mean, the actors would, would come and they would rehearse, but we would have a very strong idea of how we wanted the scene to, to be played. And we would try very hard to get him to go, you know, that way. <laughs> we try, you know, everything to get it the way that we wanted it because it was, it was so hyper-stylized. 
So it felt a little bit to me, honestly. I know we said we go like hunting for Ozu. I can't prove anything about Cassie Lemons and Ozu. But there is, I think, kind of a confidence in her, in the tone of how she shoots this and lays it out. You know, I don't think Ozu did anything in Tokyo's story the way she has like characters walk into mirrors and walk into their own oh, past. I mean, we didn't talk about that. Yeah, amazing. That's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, it's such a like, complicated shot, too. I mean, that was the other thing, too. It's like, you know, this movie was done on a shoestring budget. Like, they didn't even afford a crane, and they had to shoot that ending shot, like, seven times and uh, because they never had the water quite right. And and to get that scene in the mirror, it was like everything. They didn't want to shoot that scene because it was a big monologue. Like, she fought against so much and against so many constraints and made this movie look like a big-budget film. And it's such a testament to her as a filmmaker, like a, a technical filmmaker, that... Only in hearing the stories afterwards do you like, holy shit, she had nothing. She really had nothing. And then there's this exchange in here that made me think exactly of Tokyo's story. They almost have the exact same conversation. Because I have, we should have talked about this a little bit more last week. But there's a really beautiful scene between, you know, the good daughter-in-law and the good daughter who's like angry that everybody else is selfish. Mm-hmm. And the younger girl turns to, you know, her aunt of a sort and says is life disappointing? And the aunt says, yes, it is. I mean, Mm. that scene is here. We actually have that exact scene between Eve and between Moselle. All I know is there must be a divine point to it all and it's just over my head. That when we die, it will all come clear and we'll say, so that was the damn point. And sometimes I think there's no point at all, and that's the point. All I know is most people's lives are a great disappointment to them. And no one leaves this earth without feeling terrible pain. And if there is no divine explanation at the end of it all, well, that's sad. I, I have to say, I think that's an uncanny coincidence. Is it a coincidence? Is there truth here, Paul? What is it? I think there's truth there. I mean, that's like, I think this movie, it is talking about something that we all experience. And I think because we all deal with this, but because we all deal with it, it doesn't seem groundbreaking. Uh, and we can all accept it and we can all see ourselves in it. I, I don't know. Does that make sense? I don't, I'm not I like, don't know. It I'm really feels, wrestling. Yeah. yeah. It feels groundbreaking to me because I feel like, I feel like I was very steeped on American stories where everything's fine and everybody gets a hug and I'm steeped on sitcoms mm-hmm. where everything's fine and everybody gets a hug. And I get maybe that is why I'm so drawn to films that are darker and bleaker. And yeah. finally feel like they're telling me the truth. It is weird that I feel like this film is telling me the truth, even though it's all about how there is no truth. Well, but here's my thought. I guess after doing a whole hundred episodes with you and then how many episodes we've done here in our second season, all we've been seeing is this like the dirty, gritty underbelly of what is out there, you know? And like, we've, we've been dealing, we've been laying in the mud with characters like this. This is what American cinema is made on. Right. And what we grew up on, I a hundred percent agree with you. All the movies that I love, I agree with you, but what is viewed as a good film is always pulling up the carpet and looking at the, the corroded floorboard, the, you know, the old, you know, crumbs. It, it is the messy nature of you know it's like it's what we shove in the closet and then when uncle buck opens it that bowling ball hits him on the head like uh it's that idea like i think that like so in so what you're saying is you want more put the carpet down put some deodorizer on it vacuum it all nice and let's watch uncle buck 
No, I like I guess Uncle Buck. I, I like I love Uncle Buck. Buck. You can tell me this. But by the way, Uncle Buck is also a complicated family member. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess what I'm saying is, and that movie has some tricky things it does too, uh, not to get into all that, but uh, the idea that it is, I think I'm just so used to it now. Maybe that's yeah. what it is. I think be, we are being bombarded. Like week after week, I'm like, pop, 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 pop. I'm just being shot in the head with like, here's another fucked up thing. Here's another fucked up thing. And And there are highs and lows with it all, but... We are not seeing the simple hug it out family. We have, we have not watched a hug it out movie. Even Raising Arizona is not a hug it out movie. You know, so uh, I guess I'm maybe I'm immune to how amazing this film is, even though I equate it as being amazing. But it doesn't it doesn't knock my socks off because I think I've been living in this world, which uh, is not to say the film doesn't knock my socks off. It's just like what it's uncovering is not like. Holy shit. I think it's amazingly well done. I loved it. I'm so glad that I saw it. I think it's actually very complicated and very beautiful and very competently done. And for that reason, I would say that the aliens uh, would like it. Um, Because again, what I love about this show is showing how we are all different yet the same. The stories of the story of Tokyo story is a Japanese story that I think every American can relate to. This is a story about you know, gothic, uh, you know, Louisiana, and we can all relate to it. We don't have to be, we don't have to be of a certain uh, culture or certain color to get a movie. And I, I think that like, maybe that's, I don't know, that's what's kind of interesting about all this. We get to really be transported to a world, but thematically get to live in something that is so familiar. Well, and if nothing else, we learn how to use Voodoo to take out our enemies. Which, by the way, I was like, can I find a recipe for that? How to use voodoo as punishment? And I actually did find this on the internet from one of those, like, helpful robotic guides. Oh, boy. I'll never be late to a podcast again. How to cast revenge spells. Retaliate against those who did you wrong with a little hocus-pocus payback. You will need a black candle, carnelian, a piece of paper, a fire, asafetida, a fabric swatch, agrimony, your enemy's picture or possession, and judiciousness. Step one, light a black candle and watch the flame flicker as you declare out loud what harm you hope to inflict on your enemy. Wow. <laughs> what level of harm to inflict on your <laughs> I thought agrimony was like in emotion, but it turns out it's a plant. But anyway, Paul, maybe we will get to a brighter, colorful world next week, right? Because we're yes. doing... The Royal Tenenbaums. So excited about this film. And I haven't watched it in years and years and years. Uh, and I'm, and again, it's a perfect fucked up family, but it is exposing the truth and the lies and the and the stories that we all tell. I mean, this is this is kind of amazing to see how each person tells a very unique story. Because so far we have really unpacked some very different families. I, I'm always proud of us when we get to to kind of show off you know, how you can see different versions of something, but also that it is all the same at its core. Uh, and so take a listen to the trailer. There were three extraordinary children in the Tenenbaum family. I said sell it, yeah. Chaz Tenenbaum was a financial expert and started buying real estate in his early teens. Margot Tenenbaum was an acclaimed playwright and won a Pulitzer Prize in the ninth grade. Richie Tenenbaum was a champion tennis player ranked second in the world by age 17. They were brilliant, They were famous. They were unlucky enough to be the children of a man named Royal Tenenbaum. Are you getting divorced? It doesn't look good. 
Was that our fault? Obviously, we made certain sacrifices as a result of having children, but uh, no, Lord, no. Thank you, Pagoda. Well, I'm on my way. Now, for the first time in 22 years... I hear you're dying. Ooh, how long are you gonna last? A month, a year? I've got six weeks to set things right. <laughs> They're all living together under the same roof, in harmony. I love you more than anything. <laughs> As you know, this movie available wherever, you, wherever you're gonna stream movies. You got it. This is an easy one to find. Don't even worry about it. Don't stress on it. <laughs> and put on your sweatsuit because it is sweatsuit season, baby. I love it. Well, Amy, uh, pleasure is always to talk to you about this film. And uh, just a reminder, my documentary is on Disney+. And if you like, how did this get made? We're doing two live shows, virtually live shows, uh, in December. So come check us out. You can just go to hdtgm.com and uh, see what we got in store. Two Christmas movies. Two really great Christmas movies that would never be featured on this show, unfortunately. We've done no Melissa Joan Hart on this show, and that, that, that pings me. Paul, I, I will try to lie to you and just be cheerful from here on out forevermore. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. <laughs>